So the passage on which the sermon is based is Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 26. See if you recognize this song. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it, and as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. Right? <laughs> Recognize that at all? Probably some of you know, but that is the haunting song written by Harry Chapin in 1974, Cats in the Cradle. The ballad tells the tale of a son who is yearning for deeper connection with his father, you know, longing to go out and play catch with his dad, spend quality time together, yet the father is, you know, consumed with the demands of life. He continually promises a future meeting uh, that never takes place, never materializes. And then you may, do you know what happened to Harry Chapin? He died in an automobile accident at the age of 38, right right when he was at sort of the height of his musical prowess, after he had written Cats in the Cradle, won Grammys, he dies, you know, his, his life is just taken away so quickly at the age of 38, leaving a wife and a daughter and a son behind who um, perhaps he didn't know very well. I think the reason the song strikes such a chord inside of us, it speaks to our own experiences. Uh, our, the lack, of, um, the lack of, of fatherhood that we have, like some of us grew up without a father present in our lives. Um, other of us, like, dad was there, but he wasn't really there. He struggled to connect with us. Uh, or in some instances, you know, we lost our dad much too soon. And even those of us who had, like, a great relationship with our father, we probably still wish that it was deeper than it actually is. The reason I bring this up is the remarkable truth of Christianity is, like, the moment, the moment we embrace Jesus Christ— God's Son. The Father becomes our Father through the Spirit. Um, It is by the Spirit who is graciously given to us that this profound transformation occurs, and it's really the Spirit's role in our lives to convince us uh, that we have this kind of dad, a compassionate, loving Father who isn't too busy running the whole universe, but he really and deeply cares for us. And you know, the role of the Spirit in our lives is to help us feel and experience, like, existentially, the boundless love of, of God, our Father, like a cherished child does with the greatest dad um, on earth. And I'm not going to say, I'm not going to suggest that uh, the Spirit's work in our adoption sort of magically heals all of the father aches inside of us, because it doesn't. Um, but I, it does initiate a gradual process of healing and restoration. I think when you, when you know by the Spirit at work in you that you have a Father that loves you like this, that is the gift of all gifts. Um, and it steadily, progressively mends the inner aches that we have um, deep inside of every one of our souls. So if I, I can convince you of that from Romans 8, verses 14 through 26, where we read... Uh, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received uh, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are uh, children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, 
in order that we also may sh- also share in his glory. You know, Paul goes on, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then he kind of goes at the 30,000 foot level here. For the creation, all of the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the uh, creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Uh, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present uh, time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, that is, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not, no hope at all. Uh, who hopes with, for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And that's the end of the passage. <laughs> so this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. How, um, how familiar are you with attachment theory? Attachment theory sort of highlights the crucial relationship between a caregiver and a child uh, early in life and how that relationship shapes uh, our sense of security, comfort, trust, and kind of ends up having a profound effect on us later in life. And so the theory postulates, they theorize four different attachment principles, and I've listed them up here. I know it's a lot of words, but uh, secure attachment. Like, in this style, the caregiver consistently meets the infant's needs, provides comfort, reassurance, and, and a secure base from which a child can explore the world. And as a result, individuals with secure attachment tend to have later in life more positive, trusting relationships and effective coping strategies. And that's kind of what, you know, everybody hopes to have is secure attachment. Uh, Then there's insecure, avoidant attachment. The theory says that in this style, the caregiver is kind of consistently unresponsive or dismissive of the infant's needs. As a result, the child learns to suppress their emotional expression and becomes self-reliant, often avoiding closeness or emotional intimacy in in relationships later in life. Insecure avoidant attachment. Number three, insecure anxious attachment. Uh, In this style, the caregiver's responses are inconsistent, that sometimes meeting the child's needs and other times being neglectful or intrusive. As a result, the child becomes kind of anxious and uncertain, seeking constant reassurance and experiencing difficulty trusting others. And then the fourth one is disorganized attachment. This style is characterized by contradictory behaviors and disorganized responses from the caregiver, leading to confusion and fear um, in the child. You may know a lot about attachment theory. You, um, that may be the very first time you've heard of the, of the category. The impact of early attachment experiences, uh, it, it extends you know, beyond childhood, and it does influence our ability to form healthy relationships later on. Um, You know, the good news is that these patterns they theorize are not like set in stone. Like we could, we could 
grow up in maybe an insecure attachment, and yet uh, it can be overcome. And we think that that's one of the works of the Holy Spirit himself, is he does this, that even if we struggle to form healthy attachments early in life, significant healing and transformation is possible through the power of the Spirit inside of, uh, of our hearts, um, as he sh- sheds his love abroad in our hearts, and as he puts us in the context of loving and safe community. And he does it in, um, he communicates this, this healing power, I think, in three ways in our passage. Number one, the Abba prayer. Romans eight fourteen and 15. Here's what Paul is saying. He said, the spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Father. What, what is Abba? Well, basically, in every culture, like no matter what culture you're in, no matter what your linguistic background, when a, a baby finally gives a name to one of its parents, you know, it always seems to come out kind of like, yeah, Dada, Mama, Papa. Uh, in the ancient Near East, it was Abba. Um, Abba, 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 you know. Like, it's amazing how parents are able to distinguish the difference in the, the, the cries of their kids. Aaron is a master at this. What we found, um, I, when I went to college, the dorm was so loud that I learned to sleep with earplugs in my ears. And ever since my days in college, every night I go to bed with foam earplugs. And, but, so that was not great when we had little children and they would be crying <laughs> in the middle of the night. And of course, the only person who would hear it was their mom. But she is masterful at hearing the cry and even distinguishing between cries. Like the, she could hear the, the mama, that's the I'm hungry cry. She could hear the um, mama, that I need attention cry. And then even I sometimes could hear the uh, dada, like I need help cry. And what Paul is saying here is that when you have the Spirit and you cry out to God, like Abba, you can rest assured that your Heavenly Father hears you with the same attentiveness, the same understanding that a parent has with, with their child when they hear the individual voice of their child cry out. That's the kind of God who you have. And Paul makes the, the contrast here between slavery and uh, sonship, daughtership. He says it's so different from being a slave. And what would be interesting for those original hearers of the message is they, um, they, they were slaves or former slaves. Many of the Roman Christians he was writing to had been in a state of slavery, which is a state of living death. I mean, slavery meant getting treated like you're a piece of furniture with a soul, um, yielding up your body to whatever it is your master, you know, wants you to do. And Paul says, that is not you, and therefore you should not have that kind of relationship with God, a, a relationship that's predicated on fear. And you listen to people, so many people um, are consumed by their fears. And, and the way that they think of the divine, or God, the the most high is, is so often just through that channel of fear. And he says, that is not you. You have a father who, who hearkens to the voice of your cry. You can cry out to your Abba anytime. It reminds me of one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes. You know, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. Like, we, we have that kind of access. Um, 
You know, back when I was a pastor of a bigger church, I had a really nice office, and the office door was closed. Um, anytime anybody wanted to come in to see me, they would have to politely knock, you know, can I come in, pastor, that type of thing. I mean, that's just, that's what you do, right? Except, except if you're a kid, if you're, if you're the pastor's child, <laughs> in which case, there's no like, knock, 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 can I come in? Just, they burst through the door, they fly in to see me, you know, they don't schedule an appointment with my secretary to see me, <laughs> they, they are unrestrained, and, you know, they just start telling you everything that was on their minds and on their hearts. I mean, nowadays, I don't have an office, but if they want to get in touch with me, um, they'll just text me again, and again, and again, and again. My phone's, like, vibrating intensely, seven, eight, nine. They don't care. They absolutely don't care, Um, and I don't care. If I'm in a meeting, I want to hear from them. The Spirit grants us that kind of access to our Heavenly Father. Do you, do you feel that? Do you exercise that kind of access yourself? Do you go to Him with every bit the eagerness of a a five-year-old, you know, bursting into the office of his of his dad or of his mom, um, you know, you can approach him freely and openly, unreservedly pouring out your hearts and needs, um, because that's what the, spot, the Spirit gives you through the Abba prayer. Number two, hit the wrong button. We are obviously trying a new tactic with me running slides on, on my phone here. The climax of Romans 8 is kind of where he's building the whole argument in this section. I didn't even read to you the climax. I will in just a moment, but one quick anecdotal story. When it, one of my best memories of college at the University of Arizona was on Sunday nights. Uh, we would go to the oldest building on campus. It's called Old Main. It was the, the original building on campus. It was founded in 1885. If you're ever at our house and you see that adobe brick that's sitting on the floor beside our, our, our kitchen table. That's one of the original adobe bricks from Old Main in 1885. It was given to us as a, a priceless gift from a friend of ours earlier in life. We, we go to Old Main on Sunday nights, and um, Dave Statham had a guitar. Maybe a few other guys did too, and he'd just pull out the guitar, and we would sing on the steps of Old Main, just praise songs, hymns, do that for, uh, you know, hour, two hours, and it was great. Uh, it was one of the sweetest parts of having Christian community and friendship. The favorite song that, for me, I don't know if it was for you, Aaron, was a rendition of the climax of Romans 8. And it's Romans 8, 20, 38 through 39. For I am convinced, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, principalities there is referring to demons, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, any kind of powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is where the entire argument of Romans 8 builds to, this this incredible climax. The Holy Spirit's job is to convince you, to show you that nothing can separate you from that kind of love, the love of God. He is in the business of assuring you that you can't lose him and he can't lose you. That is what he is after. I was listening to someone um, reflect on this unbreakable father bond, and, um, and he said this, and this is so true. See, if, if you're a parent, see if, if you agree with me here. 
We are unbelievably flawed as parents. <laughs> None of us ace the parenting exam, right? We, we don't do it well. And yet, there is absolutely nothing that um, my children could do w- that would ever keep me um, from loving them. You know, there are terrible things that could happen. I, I could envision where maybe um, I'd have to set boundaries in our relationship. Maybe there were some addictions and you know, there was some boundary setting that had to take place. I might not be able to have the relationship with my children that I'd want to have with them, but I know this about my heart. I would never stop aching for them. Never. I would never. And anybody who's a parent in this room, like, am I right or am I right? Of course I'm right. And when we say that, it's not like we're boasting, like that's a virtue. It's not. It's, it's just the way that it is. And the point being, that if we incredibly flawed human beings and human parents have such an unwavering love, how much more do you think you can trust the love of the Father in heaven? Like, he is not going to give up. It is inconceivable to think that him and his perfect and infinite love would ever give up on us or ever allow anything to separate us from his heart. There is no condemnation. Now, no condemnation. Sometimes, though, we operate on an entirely different set of premises. We play, we, f- we effectively play the um, daffodil uh, theology of, like, he loves me, he loves me not, <laughs> he loves me, he loves me if I'm doing really well, he loves me not if I'm, if I'm disobeying him. I mean, and that is just, it is not, it, it couldn't be more false. He, he loves you. <laughs> he always will love you. The Father doesn't do that. The Son doesn't do that. And the Spirit doesn't do that. There's no on again, off again, because He's in your life permanently, and He's not going to ever leave. Maybe something you should try sometime is do, run this thought experiment. If you, if you really believe that nothing could separate you from the love of your Father, if you really believe that to the bottom of your heart and the bottom of your toes, like what would be different what would, be a, what would be different in your life at that moment? What would be different in your relationship at that moment? Um, what would be different? You, you would have more joy, yes. You would actually have more obedience. Like, some people think that the way to get others to obey God is, you know, to threaten, and, and here's the law, and you better not uh, you know, step outside the lines, and you know, threaten, and, and, and fear, and no, I mean, the, the best way to get anyone to, to walk in God's commands is, is to just open up their hearts to experience his love. Because when you know it's a loving father who's up there, who's giving you commands, of course, of course you want to walk in those. And so, yes, to, the Holy Spirit's role is to break through our doubts and help us experience the depth and intensity of that love so that, that we would never doubt that it'll ever go away. Do you really believe, do you really believe that the Father loves you with the same intensity that he loves his only begotten son, Jesus? Do you believe that? I mean, come on, none of us believe, none of us effectively believe that, but it's true, and it's the Spirit's work to, to, to teach you that. Thirdly, and then finally, the groans. In verses 22 through 26, you remember in the passage, Paul talks about groaning, and uh, the Greek word that he used there, if you go to Greek literature, it can refer to a woman groaning in pains in, in childbirth. 
If you think about labor pains in the ancient world, you know, before there were pain meds, before there were epidurals, not only was labor, were labor pains exceptionally painful, but those groans, they were really, you know, the cries of death. They were death screams, since so many women died in childbirth. Um, it, it's not just an expression of pain, it's an expression of death. Another place in Greek literature where this word is used, it refers to the groanings of warriors lying on a battlefield. Like when the fighting is done and the smoke is cleared, the noise of the battle is finally over. One of the most horrible things you hear from survivors, veterans of the battle, is afterwards just the groaning of men laying there as they see their lives literally you know, ebbing out, as they bleed out on the battlefield, desperately wounded, ebbing out. And so Paul says... These shocking words in verse 22, that the entire physical world is groaning, death pains. And in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, the frustration of decay and death, the frustration of a world that is steadily wearing down. In Paul's language, uh, he says the whole creation, the whole physical world is groaning right up to the present time. I dare say that that is not how we have been in, uh, taught by our culture to see nature. Like when we go out and view any uh, great part of nature, when we stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or we uh, stand on the, the shore of the Pacific Ocean in San Diego, or we look at the snow-capped um, Tetons, uh, we say, this is so wonderful, this is so beautiful, I feel so uh, energized being here in such a beautiful sight. But Paul says, that if your ears were attuned to the right harmonic frequency, you would hear, you would hear sighing and throbbing and death and pain in all of creation. Like culturally, uh, we've been told um, that the, we've been taught to, to think that the sun is singing zippity doo and the birds are chirping, oh, what a beautiful morning. But in reality, they're not that the sun is groaning, that it's burning out. The, the trees are crying that they're dying. The grass is frightened because it'll grow thirsty and burn. I, I get it. It's metaphorical language, but it's such a powerful um, way of describing the curse of sin in the world. And then, so here's where he goes with it. He says, all of creation is groaning, but not only creation groans, we groan. Like, of course we groan in our suffering, in our pain, in our misery. Like, we are the soldiers lying on the ground. Like, please, please come and stop the bleeding. Staunch the wound because this life is full of so many wounds and so much bleeding. And that leads us to verse 23. What does he mean here? Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In the same way, verse 26, um, no, I think he's saying that first, on 23, he's saying that we're, when we're so weighed down by life's heavy burdens, um, when we groan, rest assured, the Spirit is at the same time groaning inside of us. Like there's somehow, we take, he takes our groans, he overlays his groans, and together, like, we groan, we, we groan as one. And then he goes on in verse 26, like, sometimes we're so overwhelmed to the point we don't even know how to pray. We don't even know what we should be saying to God in those moments. And in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. 
It's like the Spirit takes whatever weak and feeble prayers that we have, and he, um, he almost prays like what we should be praying at that moment. Like he takes our weak prayers, and he makes them his strong prayers, and he speaks to God on our behalf. You know, um, it says we're inwardly waiting for our adoption, waiting for our, our, the redemption of our bodies, waiting for us to kind of step out into the fullness of what it means to be sons and daughters of God. And, um, and to finish, I think where Paul wants us to see is in Romans 8, 21. Um, he says these words, We know that the creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the, of the children of God. He's saying that on the last day, this world will be renewed in glory when you and I, as children, are renewed in glory. That the, somehow the glory of God that is up in heaven will come down upon us and it will it'll be like so blindingly beautiful and powerful. It will envelop us and transform us into the sons and daughters that we ought to be and it will extend out to all of the created world and it'll extend this world and, and turn it into the place that it was always supposed to be. And the word that the Bible use, uses for an experience like that is, is simply glory. Glory comes down. And I think it may be something like this. So the 2010 U.S. Open Golf Championship was held at one of the most beautiful places on earth, Pebble Beach. And uh, Graham McDowell is an Irish golfer. He, he came into the last hole with a one-shot lead. And um, he never won a major title before. And so, you know, you're playing, you got the lead in the tournament. You're going on to your last hole. You've never won a big one before. Uh, in fact, no European had ever uh, won a U.S. Open in the last 40 years. And so if you go and watch the YouTube video of his last par putt, um, it's a short one. It's only three feet, and he stands over it. I mean, by this point, he knows he's, he's going to make it. He's not going to miss a three-foot uh, par putt. So very steady with the pendulum, good pace. Uh, he makes the putt. And then at that moment, like most golfers do when they win the tournament, they drop their... Um, drop the putter, hug their caddy, and then there are two men that run out of the gallery. One um, 70-year-old guy who is pictured right there, and then one guy who's in his probably mid to late 30s. And it turns out to be, of course, his brother and his dad. And so the NBC cameraman is on the putting green at that moment, and he comes up really close to, to them as they're embracing. All three of them are embracing. Father, son, and Graham McDowell. And the father at that moment is just weeping. And he's, he's just wailing um, as, as they're all embraced. And he says, you're some kind of kid. <laughs> you're some kind, some kind of kid. And that's the greeting that he gives to him um, at the moment of his greatest professional glory when he wins the U.S. Open. You're some kind of kid. And, you know, I told you that I'm a total sucker for sports, <laughs> underdog sports stories, but I think it's going to be something like that, you know. It's going to look and feel like that. Like at that moment, like when, we, when we're made into the children, we're finally supposed to be. We're not going to... They're not going to feel fatherless anymore. 
Like, not at all. The father aches are, are all going to be gone. We're not going to ache and we're not going to groan. Instead, we're going to be clothed in glory, united with the father of glory, with the son of glory, and all of creation in a state of renewed and perfect existence. That's what the Holy Spirit has in store for us. Amen.